Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Let's talk about another portfolio, oil. The portfolio that exists in Venezuela is hurting. And here to tell us more about it is Liam Denning. He is our energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Liam, thank you very much for being here. Um, All right. We know Venezuela's economy is a mess. We know the politics is a mess. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is the likelihood that they will find a friendly nation, whether it be Russia or China or somebody, to loan them more money uh, and perhaps uh, help them stave off that day of reckoning? Um, Well, define friendly. I mean, I think the Non-hostile, because, I mean, the United States is even talking about more sanctions uh, on Venezuela. Yeah, I think, uh, so the situation right now is uh, they've got declining oil production, um, the economy's in a tailspin, and they've got at least $5 billion or so of um, both sovereign debt and debt that resides at the state oil company coming due by the end of the year. So one possible route for them is to get more money from China and Russia. My sense is China may be reluctant to put more into this it, since it may be just throwing, you know, good money after bad. Yeah. Um, I think with Russia, it's it's more interesting because there there are reports that the Russians are attempting to renegotiate some uh, some clauses around collateral with existing um, I mean, yeah. isn't Ros- Rosneft right? Is the Russian yeah. isn't Rosneft the, 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 the Russian oil? And the they already controlled. have a forty nine percent stake in. No, no. They, they lent money to um, Pedro. Collateral, I beg your pardon. And it's collateralized with a roughly uh, half stake in Sitgo, which is the the Venezuelan refiner. Now, yeah. quite sensibly, they may be the Russians may be trying to uh, renegotiate that because it's it's unclear that. If that ever came to pass, they could actually take possession of those assets. So, Liam, let's zoom out a little bit because Venezuela is a hotspot right now of difficulties on a number of levels. And it sort of reintroduces uh, this idea of political risk in the oil market that really has been sort of absent. And I'm wondering, let's say Venezuela does become the bur- first big oil producer to withdraw from the market due to political risk or to pull Mm -hmm. back. Would that actually cause oil prices to rally? Would that be a positive factor or would that uh, possibly be a negative with people uh, wondering what will happen? Uh, I think, you know, if if there is some sort of generalized collapse in Venezuela and it takes barrels off the market, that is generally going to be seen as bullish 
for prices. Uh, I, I think the thing to watch out for, though, is, you know, we have seen this happen before. I mean, you look at a country like Libya, where the country literally fell apart. It's being run by three different competing governments. Their production has actually been coming back uh, recently uh, to the extent that it's you've now got OPEC and the countries that are trying to limit supply actually trying to nudge Libya uh, towards limiting its output, which is kind of crazy for a country that really needs the revenue. Um, I, I think what I take away from Venezuela is if we if we really step back and we look at what's happened in the last few years, um, what people have been waiting for is some kind of big pullback in US shale, i.e. the money runs out, companies go bankrupt, people get laid off, production goes down. Now, it did go down, but then it rebounded quite quickly. And I think uh, if we're looking for barrels coming off the market, it's not going to be the more flexible um companies that are operating in places like Texas, because, you know, even if those companies go bankrupt, someone else just takes over the assets and starts running it. I think it's much more likely that we see problems on the supply side in these economies, which are very beholden to the oil price, which haven't restructured, and where there's really very little flexibility on both the economic and the political side to deal with the pressure that they're under. Liam, a really interesting point and one that I hadn't really thought about. In other words, stop looking for shale producers to cut production. It's really going to be some kind of crisis in one of these other producers like a Venezuela that's going to take uh, barrels off the market. Liam Denning, energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. His work is tremendous. Check it out. Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly or on Bloomberg NI Gadfly. Plastic surgery is a huge business. Pim, I didn't realize uh, that Americans spent more than $16 billion on cosmetic plastic surgeries, minimally invasive procedures last year. That's the most on record. And to give us a sense of how much uh, this business is growing, I want to bring in Dr. Stafford Brumund. He's a plastic surgeon at 740 Park Plastic Surgery on the Upper East Side of New York City. And uh, Dr. Brumund, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to get a sense from you in the growth of the industry in the past few years, what procedures have been the absolute most popular? Well, there are a slew of procedures which people come in for, from non-invasive uh, injectables and surgery. So in the injectables uh, realm, it's grown a lot. In our practice, it's grown almost 20% year over year and keeps growing. Are you talking about like, fillers and Bot things like Botox, that? Botox, fillers, fillers, Botox and fillers. And then the other ones are non-invasive treatments like skin tightening and fat freezing, which is cool sculpt uh, and all therapy. So they can have treatments which are not surgical, uh, either injectables or superficial treatments that make them look better. And those have grown immensely. They're more popular. It delays plastic surgery, uh, surgery itself, but doesn't eliminate the need for surgery. Can you speak about some of the individual companies that have maybe pioneered or producing new types of therapies or services that you didn't have, let's say, five years ago? Well, Botox now is a brand name, and everyone knows Botox and is really not afraid of it. And that's owned by Allergan. And Allergan, I think, was recently bought by activists. So it's a whole range of companies, but they have brought along Botox, which has many uses, as well as cosmetic uses. It's Botox Cosmetica, 
or cosmetic. Uh, but they also have cool sculpt, which was fat freezing, which was a technology where you did not have to have surgery, just had a cooling device sort of strapped to you, and that area lost the fat that it was treating. It froze it basically, and they just recently bought that as well. Uh, so, and there are other companies that still have other Botox or uh, botulism toxin products, uh, like Valiant bought Metasys a while back. So there are other companies that do that. There's another one traded Revance, which is a small company, which has another uh, botulism toxin product. Is this like all the effect of uh, Instagram and selfies where people, an increasing number of people are uh, obsessed with the way that they look? Or is this uh, simply the normalizing of an ongoing trend where people just want to look their best? And if they can find a procedure to help them do that, uh, they'll do that. I mean, how much excessive surgery do it's, you see? It's really a matter or a function of both. I think that uh, social media has propelled this to a new level. And I also think that people really are working harder and longer and want to be relevant and they have to look the part. So they come in seeing how they can still be relevant in the workforce. Uh, and so it's a matter, it really is, it bifurcates that way. It's the young person coming in knowing that they've seen selfies and they are on social media and Facebook and a more middle-aged or older group wanting to have plastic surgery to, to stay in the workforce. That's that's a fascinating point. In other words, people who are older knowing that they might be replaced more quickly uh, if they don't look young. Well, or they'll come in and they say, you know what, I work with all these young people. I can't look like someone's uncle or grandmother. I've got to look younger. So they want to do something that will transform them, but not change them so that they can be still relevant in the workforce. You notice he keeps looking at me whenever he says those. Uh, You're just being self-conscious. Yeah, right. I didn't notice uh -huh. that at yeah, all. Yeah, I saw those eyes move. Right. Um, I, uh, Dr. Broman, I'm, I, I want to ask you about the practice uh, that, you know, you happen to be a plastic surgeon, but I mean, you're a medical doctor, so you've got to practice. The software that you use, the management systems that you use, uh, that is big business. Athena Health, for example, one of the big software uh, practice uh, providers. It, can you give us some insight into what has changed there and this whole idea of trying to digitize people's medical records so that it becomes a more efficient service? Because not all places well, are as efficient as some. The trend is to go to electronic medical records. Right. In Plastic surgery practices, you don't necessarily have to do that because it's a smaller practice. But when you're affiliated with a hospital, as we are at 740 Park Plastic Surgery, you can get the software uh, and the electronic records through the hospital system, which is Mount Sinai Hospital. Or you can get your own system, which is what we have, and there are smaller players in that field. So it's not only in plastic surgery, is it Botox and fillers, but it's uh, medical records, it's information technology. Uh, it's devices. So there's a whole different slew of things to, to look at in the medical space, but they're smaller players. Ours is Nextech, which is a privately held company, which is really on the forefront of uh, dermatology and plastic surgery and ophthalmology. And that's the system we use. And they have, it's specialized, right? I mean, that's what's so interesting is that the, the market in a sense is fragmented because the software has been built for specific types of practice and uh, specialties. Every specialty has its own needs. And we have our needs where we need to show photographs and file photographs and uh, interact with the hospital and keep our own records sort of in shape so that our office can work more efficiently. 
You know, uh, before the segment, we were talking about how, in your view, sometimes your role is as much a physician and a surgeon as it is a psychiatrist or a psychologist and, and a therapist, and that when people come to you, it's uh, really uh, part of your job to let them know if you think that perhaps they ought to go a different route, if perhaps it's not a responsible surgery. Can you talk a little bit about that? A plastic surgery is a two-way street. So we have to listen to our patients to see what brings them in and what concerns them and what we can do to help them. But then we have to project and help them figure out what works and what we can do legitimately and rightly. So we've got to sort of figure out where they're coming from, whether it's the right indications, whether it's the right requirements, whether they're uh, medically in the right place to have this sort of surgery. And then we have to discuss with them the options. What's a, a bad reason to want to get plastic surgery? Well, there are many bad reasons. And so each person has their own take on it. But whether it's a uh, relationship issue, uh, whether it is trying to look like someone that they shouldn't be trying to look like, uh, there are a lot of reasons for it. Or peer pressure. So there are some reasons not to do surgery. And we as a as a body as plastic surgeons are offering our services to help them we're here to help people we want people happy we're in the make people happy business so if we can't do that and we think that their uh, objectives are not legitimate then we'll tell them we talk to them I want to thank you for talking with us Dr. Stafford Beaumont is a plastic surgeon with 740 Park Plastic Surgery and a very interesting, uh, very interesting conversation about the nature of uh, plastic surgery. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, we'll be looking forward to earnings from the Walt Disney Company plus Alphabet, the parent company of Google. And here to help us understand what to look for is Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He can be followed on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. All right, P.T. Sweeney, uh, this uh, report today, I want to focus on the combination perhaps of uh, Alphabet and Walt Disney, because when I look at the dashboard, which I you, I compliment you on, on Bloomberg Intelligence, because it gives you every piece of data as if I didn't know that Dunkirk was the <laughs> big movie of the weekend. Uh, I find that it's Facebook and Alphabet. Those are the ones that are really competing for the ad dollars for companies such as the Walt Disney Company and ESPN. Is there an overlap? Is there Because it seems as though there's a bleed between one kind of company and another. Content is a very fuzzy thing now. Yes, I think um, you know we've seen uh, something that we've been talking about in the TMT technology, media, and telecom space for the last twenty years is this convergence of technology and, and media and content, and uh, and we're really, really are seeing it really over the last five to six, seven years really accelerate. And so examples would be 
a traditional technology company such as Google is actually, through their ownership of YouTube, one of the biggest television platforms in the business on a global basis. Uh, and part of their, uh, you know, they're probably generating, you know, several billion dollars of advertising revenue on uh, YouTube. So there's a, a classic example. And then another would be, you know, uh, AT&T, the largest telecommunications company, spending $85 billion to buy Time Warner to get those assets to put that content over their wireless network here. So we really are seeing the convergence here as consumers spend more and more of their time uh, online, if you will, and outside of the traditional uh, media uh, ecosystem. Yeah, Paul, you were saying uh, before the segment that 70% of display ads, I just, I can't believe this, 70% of display ads are going to Google and Facebook, and that proportion has been going up, and that's been taking away from platforms such as Disney's and other uh, tr more traditional media companies. I'm trying to understand how effective some of these ads are. I mean, I think about, for example, the Google search ads, and how often do people really click on them? How valuable is that to uh, retailers and others uh, that are doing the advertising? What's well, interesting when you when you, if you went to the television upfront presentations in May for all the big broadcast networks, they would tell you that digital advertising is not nearly as effective as some people believe. There is a lot of audience fraud. You can't even really measure accurately the audience that is seeing your ad, number one. Number two, you don't know where your ad is actually being placed in many instances on the internet. Uh, and there are obviously those famous examples where an uh, advertiser would have its message you know, next to some type of ISIS you know, video or cer certainly uh, content that you don't want to be associated with. Whereas on the broadcast and cable networks, you know exactly where your ad will be. It is a advertiser safe environment. That being said, the dollars, the numbers tell a different story. TV ad spending this year will be up probably low single digits, uh, whereas digital advertising across the internet will probably be up 15 to 17%. So advertisers continue to allocate more and more of their budgets to digital advertising platforms. And as you mentioned, um, it really is a duopoly for big brand advertisers. If they want to allocate their dollars on to the internet broadly defined, they really only have two two choices, and that is uh, Facebook uh, and uh, Google. So, um, and everybody else is kind of fighting for the scraps, which are big scraps, and they're growing. But uh, Google and Facebook are really the dominant players here. Um, and I think a lot of advertisers are saying, yes, we have issues about uh, measurement. Yes, we have issues about uh, accountability and context. But at the end of the day, we know that our consumers, our audiences are spending more line, more time online, and therefore we need to be there as well. Talking about spending, spending more money for live sports. I'm wondering if you could talk to the issue of ESPN, some comparisons to a year ago so that we understand what's going to happen this afternoon when they tell us about the operations of ESPN and so on. Yeah, so the challenge uh, for ESPN, in the space of probably two years, two, maybe three years, ESPN has gone from the crown jewel of the Walt Disney investment story uh, to being really the, the big question mark. And that is because uh, un, uh, very similar to what we're seeing across the entire television ecosystem, even the mighty ESPN is losing subscribers to cord cutting and cord shaving as people try to pare back uh, their spending on the traditional pay TV packages. Even ESPN is feeling it. So they have lost, you know, several probably four to five million subscribers over the last uh, four or five years. Um, and that is impacting their ability to uh, charge for advertising and as well as it impacts their affiliate fees that they can charge uh, to their distributors. So they have revenue challenges at ESPN. And that's a problem because their costs, their costs are primarily programming. And those programming uh, rights fees to the NFL and to Major League Baseball and to the NBA, those are very big numbers. And 400 they are fixed. million. And that's right. And Isn't that are, right for the, and for the NBA? 
Uh, yeah, it was actually an additional four hundred million dollars right. above their last contract. So they they have billions of dollars of rights fees that are long term, multi year contracts that are fixed at a time when their revenue is being pressured. That's the uh, the challenge for ESPN. Well, and it's not just ESPN for Disney, right? Because we also uh, have gotten news that thirty eight thousand Florida union workers are looking for higher wages and are uh, prepared to be pretty aggressive with that. How realistic is it that their wages could be increased enough? to make a material dent in Disney's earnings and potentially hurt them. Yeah, that's it's going to be an interesting question to see how they uh, talk about it on, on the call coming up on their earnings. Um, that is, the parks and resorts business has actually been a great story for the Walt Disney Company over the last four or five years. This is a, a business that um, you know is a mid to high single digit revenue growth business, a low double digit profit growth business. So this is a, a business that they need to uh, really manage their costs well. Um, so that and they're one of the largest costs, obviously, is their personnel costs, and to the extent that they have a material impact uh, to the costs in Florida, which is their biggest market globally, uh, that will have an impact uh, marginally, I think, on the profitability of that business. But I think investors still view that business as a very good business, as a business that is worthy of more investment. And in fact, we see the Walt Disney Company investing you know, every year more and more in their parks and resorts businesses around the world, from Shanghai to Orlando to California to additional cruise ships. Uh, so that's a business that they like. That's a business actually that Comcast through its acquisition of Universal, uh, got all the parks and resorts from Universal. That's a business Comcast likes. So the theme park business globally is a very good business. And of course, D- Disney's a world leader. Aren't they just about to celebrate something like their 10 millionth visitor to Probably. their theme park in China? In uh, uh, Well, China, China, their first year they had, uh, I guess, uh, I guess it was about t- 10 million and that yeah. was kind of the, their goal. And then now they're, now they're in year two. So Shanghai's generally been very successful for, the, for them. And in fact, they've announced additional expansion of, of Shanghai uh, to fuel what they believe will be uh, future growths there. So I think that was a, I think most investors view that as a very good investment. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He is now off uh, to a trip to Disney World with his family uh, while he checks out Disney earnings. We want to turn now to Ira Jersey, our interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, to give us a little bit of a preview of this week's FOMC meeting. Ira, what can we expect to learn? Hey, hey, Tim. Um, so the, the Federal Reserve is not going to hike this week. You know, the market's pricing for a 0% chance of a hike this week. So that would certainly be the biggest shock to the market. And I think you'd wind up seeing uh, two-year notes sell off quite significantly if uh, if they were to do that. Um, I, but there is the, the possibility that they can announce runoff this week, which um, I think has caused some confusion and consternation around uh, different market segments about, you know, exactly what does that mean? What does it mean when the Federal Reserve starts to run off? Uh, um, it's treasury and mortgage portfolio. So uh, so they're expected to start allowing some of their uh, treasury and mortgage-backed securities holdings to pay down starting as soon as, what, October or September even. Um, and the biggest question, according to your latest research note, is around mortgage-backed securities, right? That's where people are sort of girding for the most potential volatility. Am I right in that? 
Yeah, I, I think that that's that's where the biggest risk comes is really what uh, what what comes from that, and and the reason is is because it, that can't be managed by the um, uh, by any bureaucracy. So when the Treasury portfolio runs off, even though uh, some months are going to run off significantly more Treasuries than than mortgage-backed securities, um, the Treasury Department can determine how that's going to come into the market. Is that going to come into the market with them issuing more ten-year notes or thirty-year thirty-year uh, bonds? The answer is probably not. They'll end up issuing a lot more T-bills and, and two-year and three-year notes, so very short maturity, short duration, not a lot of market risk instruments. Whereas mortgages, that it will have to just be absorbed by the market based on how much, um, uh, how much people actually refinance their houses and how much mortgage activity there is. So, so, so that's something that's, that can't be controlled as well. So that's one of the reasons why uh, we think that uh, there could be much more volatility in mortgage-backed securities than, say, treasury, uh, treasury securities because of this. So just to be clear, these mortgage-backed securities are agency-backed uh, securities. These are mortgages that are insured by Fannie and Freddie and Jimmy And Ginny Mae. Right, right, and Ginny Mae. Uh, I'm wondering, how much do you expect that mortgage rates could potentially increase if there is a lack of clarity around the runoff program, specifically with respect to mortgage-backed securities? Well, so, so I think the Fed's done a good job in preparing the market for how runoff, the, the pace of runoff. But but one of the interesting things is for mortgages, there's um, the Fed said that they're going to allow up to $20 billion a month of their mortgage securities roll off. Now, what's interesting about that is that barely $20 billion a month is running off today. So there'll be many months when um, they run off everything out of their portfolio. And all of that winds up going back in to mortgage pools. So you wind up with, with more mortgage-backed security issuance. It winds up affecting um, what rates are going to go out in the future. Now, it, you know, how much that, that's, that's going to increase mortgage rates? Well, back in 2011, when the Fed allowed their mortgage-backed security portfolio to run off, you saw significant volatility. You saw swings of 20, 30, 40 basis points within a few weeks. Uh, in uh, um, in the market, so uh, you know it's hard to judge exactly what the impact could be basis point per per dollar of of runoff. But I think you could wind up seeing significant volatility, and you know a twenty five basis point, thirty basis point increase in um, in mortgage spreads compared to treasuries could uh, could potentially happen, and and that would obviously have an impact on the broader broader economy. Um, Ira, should we rename it the debt ceiling? Should it just be like the debt window because they always open it at the very last minute? <laughs> you know, the, de- the debt ceiling, you know, that's the one thing that could probably, uh, you, you know, stop the Federal Reserve from actually uh, uh, starting to run off of their portfolio. The, the, they always wait to the last minute to raise the debt ceiling. It's actually from a, for, for a lot of strategists, it gives us something to write about, but it's really quite, um, it's really quite annoying because it's a man-made problem, right? It's, it's not something that is, uh, is societal. It's really Congress just not uh, being willing to change the rules so they, so they, only, they, can fund, um, they can fund the government based on the budget that they've already passed. So, so it, it's, right now, our expectation is early October is the time when uh, they actually run out of money to, uh, to uh, both cash and, uh, and debt limit. Um, soon after that, they'll wind up running out of money in order to, uh, to actually refinance debt. So uh, th- there are some, there are some 
suggestions that some people in Congress want to do, like change the debt ceiling and say, hey, you're allowed to refinance stuff. You're just not allowed to issue new debt once you reach the limit. Something like that would certainly give the market some comfort. Um, you're starting to see, actually, the market move a little bit. Um, October T-bills are trading cheap to other T-bills because people are worried about you know, them missing a, a payment. Even if it's for a day, it's just really annoying um, to have to deal with that operational challenge. Ira, thank you so much for joining us. Ira Jersey is an interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, And Ira, I'm sure we'll be speaking with you in the upcoming days and weeks. I am very interested to see whether the Federal Reserve does mention anything about this runoff program. If they don't, I am sure there will be questions about how uh, serious they are about starting this runoff uh, later this year, certainly in the earlier part, September or October should be interesting. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.